rogues, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. From the gleaming, streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, I am the legendary Burl Bear. That character over there, that's Mark Boyer, our fact checker. Joining us on the phone, author of the new book, Accidental Gangster, Orlando Spado, or or is it Orlando Spado? I'm Orlando Spado. People in this country do say Spado, but the correct pronunciation in Italy is Spado. We'll order some Italian food to make sure we say it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I happen to be a close friend with Nick Pelleggi. And, you know, guys like you and Nick and, uh, and, and so many other authors never get the credit that they rightfully deserve. I'll, I'll agree with that. <laughs> because, you know, people don't understand that what they're watching on TV or on the big screen that began with the written word by somebody. I mean, I saw De Niro and uh, Pacino on, on some show. It was quite a while back. And they were talking about uh, the words and what they said and how they said it and, and Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't they give credit to Nick because he's the one who wrote those words. I find it fascinating. And you have a book out that's even more fascinating than our conversation, Accidental Gangster. Your background and upbringing and the, the way you dealt with people was not, not the least bit criminal. You got to know people and understand people and do problem solving, uh, helping them with their insurance. Am I correct? Correct. What did you, you learn know, as an insurance agent? I learned long ago as a salesman, I consider myself a salesman, selling is 98% understanding human beings, 2% product knowledge. Because they always used to say when you were learning sales, or I was learning sales years ago, when they wanted me to sell something to somebody, it was all about overcoming objections. And I would say, well, the product has to solve a problem or has to fulfill a need. If it doesn't, it's not the right product for the person. <laughs> That's right. you got to fill that need. People have some very basic needs uh, that quite often aren't catered to in contemporary society. You have to kind of go outside the box or outside the limitations to get your needs met. So uh, how did you transition from uh, the legal? Well, I don't know if insurance really is legal. It's always got to struck me as a protection racket. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you something. I have a very dear friend. He was a lawyer. His name was Frank Russo. Mm-hmm. His father was also Frank Russo. But Frank Russo was the boss in Rome, New York. And we're Calabrese, Calabrian, from, mm-hmm. from Calabria. And he and I, we traveled from Rome, New York. And about once a week, we went to New York City. We stayed at the Warwick Hotel. And eventually, I was meeting, I met Frank Costello, I met Russell Buffalino uh, in New York with him. That's how I got to meet those guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, and Frank was always the guy that people went to in Rome if they had a problem, Rome or Utica area in upstate New York. I guess Frank was actually grooming me, unbeknownst to me. I knew things about my grandfather that my father had told me. And, and, and back in those days in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and my dad used to go there 
all the time. But that was the stronghold of the Calabrian Mafia, mm -hmm. otherwise known as the Andragata. And I found out that when my grandfather, Angelo, came over, he was a made man, and his brother, Gregory. And Frank's father was the boss, and as a little boy, Frank told me he used to open the cellar doors on Saturday mornings, and only a few guys were allowed in there where they had a meeting with Frank's father, and my grandfather was one of the guys there. And the reason I got to know that, because on the other side, on my mother's side of the family, there was, and we grew up in a duplex with my mother's parents on the other side and brothers and sisters. And they didn't want my mother to marry my father because of the connections ah. uh, with, the, with the mafia and because of who his father was and so forth. And then my father was also one of the original founders of the Union for Revere Copper and Brass in Rome, New York. As a little boy, I remember my father and his friends getting on a train and going to Chicago and having union meetings. And you already know that I was a successful insurance agent for the Prudential. Then I had my own agency, and I was doing several millions of dollars a year in the 70s, early 70s, several millions a year in credit life and accident health. And I owned my own, I owned the old school house that I purchased, uh, and I had a training school where I used to bring uh, salesmen and or I, I was, they call me the innovator of it all, or the, the guy who pioneered the uh, after sale method that is now well known in automobile dealerships. Hmm. And I grew, and I had a deal with the insurance company out of Michigan that I was allowed to use the premiums to grow my business. Wow, that's a, that's well, a little yeah, unusual. In those days, a lot of insurance companies would do that when they had like what they call a golden agent, which I was. And I had salesmen in Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, uh, Poughkeepsie, uh, right up to New York City. I had over 250 automobile dealers as clients. Wow. And we trained them. I, I mean, I used to teach the dealer how to sell a car at cost. And back in those days, still gross a couple grand a car. Is that by the add-ons of the coverage? The add-ons, uh, you know, uh, if you wanted to pay cash, how to convince you to keep your cash, finance the car, and buy the credit life and accident out. Because on the financing, there's a big gap there that dealers make a lot of money. And then with the credit life and accident out, that was another big bonus uh, to the automobile dealers. And then I brought another product, polyglycol, warranties, alarm systems. Eventually, I was doing everything, you know. So I really grown, and an order with me consisted of Bob Bushke or Dick Sikora or Dick Leamy would come in from Michigan, come to my office building. They wouldn't even go to my bookkeeper. They'd come to me, 
because they knew I was always one month in premiums out that I owed them. And I kept that in the credenza drawers behind my, uh, uh, where I sat, behind my desk. And they knew right where to go. It was no big deal. I was growing, they were happy. And then my cousin one day, I always wanted to go national, but I couldn't figure a way how I can go national with my business because you got to be licensed in every state. And my cousin was going to become a realtor for Century 21, and he came over and asked me to review his contract. So I'm sitting in his office reviewing the Century con- 21 contract, and there it dawned on me, holy shit, this is how I go throughout the country with mine. I get different agents in each state who are already licensed, teaching them my methods. Right. And I put together a business plan, and, you know, and like also through Frank, we met Dino De Laurentiis, Russell, Piccolopati, and people like that, and, and how we met Ralph when he was, uh, I mean, Dino, they were filming a movie in New York, across 134th Street, got all the city permits, but then they got stopped from filming because they didn't, they weren't paying the right guys then. Yeah, so that's important, especially in the big metropolitan areas. Back there in that area, that was very important. Uh, so they came to us, and uh, that's why we went to Frank Costello, and we got that taken care of. Yeah, you got to make sure. Well, <laughs> made me think of the old uh, Cockney Express, whatever. It's crackers to slip a roser the dropsy in snide, which yeah. means it's crazy to pay off a cop and counterfeit money. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of falls in that same thing. You got to make sure you're paying paying the right person. The honorarium, the executive producer position, where the guy doesn't really have to do anything, but is out of respect. So anyway, that, uh, what became my pivotal moment was every, all my agents would have been multimillionaires. I don't know how much money I would have made. I needed $12 million to bring this on a national basis and do it right. Dino DiLorenzo was going to raise the money for me. And I was out here in Los Angeles with Frank at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I remember Dino had his office on uh, Dayton and Cannon Drive at the time. We all went, I brought him downtown to, uh, I think it was L.A. Motors, a dealership, to show them how my system worked inside a dealership. And while I'm about here, an agent, and he was like my bodyguard also, Jim Generale out of Syracuse. He was dating my uh, secretary, mm-hmm. and him and my accountant, and his girl, they all went out one night, got drunk. Accountant, the only people who knew about the deal I had with the insurance company was the president, the vice president, Bob Bushke, my yeah. brother, my accountant, and me. That's it. And the accountant blabbers it out about the deal. I got feelings that because General Riley was so close and traveled the country with me, they figured he knew. Oh, no. And General Riley used that to try to take over my agency, which created a big problem. And uh, it didn't work out for General Riley. 
And General Riley happened to be with me one time in New York at the Warwick because my Alaska, his suite used to be above mine at the Warwick. And I used to walk with Maya every night down 54 with his dog. Down 54, make a left on 5th to 57th, yep. back up to 6th Avenue. We used to do that every night that Meyer was there. Well, he wasn't exactly hiding, and he did have a dog with him. It's funny. He was there at the time that gambling was just becoming legal in New Jersey. Isn't that a coincidence? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how those things happen. Yeah, just uh, by accident, you know. Well, they, it was a grandfather clause. That's how they did <laughs> Yeah. Brought that well, in. Well, we're all grandfathers now. And, but anyways, four and a half years later, it became a federal indictment on me. Well, that doesn't sound fair to me. Don't sound right. They had me for mail order fraud. Oh, that's that is I the mean, that's the charge fraud. of last resort. Mail fraud. Yeah, I, I had a buddy of mine got hit the same thing. Fraud. Because the dealers mail the monthly premiums to me, they call it mail fraud. That's the standard way of doing business. It's very tricky. I had a, a, a very good friend of mine who was in the insurance business, and he did a brochure. And in the brochure, it mentioned one of the uh, companies that he was representing that didn't happen to be licensed in one of the states where the brochure showed up. And they got him on federal charges of mail fraud because they were just after him. Yeah. You know, they, if they could find anything real, they'd find a way of making it real. They tried to make it a real, and quite honestly, they were trying to make it an order. And I, I really, although I know Sonny Franchise, I've had meetings with him. He invited me to his home. Although I knew Meyer, although I was never affiliated with him. But now I can remember in Syracuse, New York, after my lawyer got me five years probation on it, and telling the judge, Mr. Spado could go either way. He's a very intelligent person. He can go either way. I recommend that he takes the legal route. Well, you know what? They took my license from me, the, oh, my wow. insurance license. Now I can't make money doing what the freak I love to do. <coughs> I ended up, I got divorced, I lost everything. I uh, ended up with my second wife in San Francisco, and which is basically a small city, seven miles by seven miles, and I just started doing my own thing. I had a gambling truck, I was doing this, I was doing that, I became very well known, and I had people around me all the time, and uh, then I came down to L.A., I was with Dino Ralph and all those people, and somehow I became what they call a Hollywood fixer. Now what exactly is uh, my dear friend who passed away recently, who was co-host here on the show, Howard Lapidus. He was one, I didn't hear that. Um, he was my former co-host on this show and a good friend of mine, Howard Lapidus, who's a entertainment manager and occasionally a film producer, wonderful fellow. A major portion of his job, his work was getting ahead of crises and fixing them before they became crises. That's right. And that's what we did. Yeah. That's what I did. It's a rare talent to do it. You have to be a real people person 
as he was and as you are because of your professional background or your training or your intuition. Some right, people can was, just read the pulse of the world. for me. Uh, I was able to do everything nice, calmly, talk to people. Sometimes I had to talk to husband and wife on divorce situations. And, you know, you see a big divorce happening in the newspaper, and then all of a sudden everything's quiet yeah. and happy. Um, that's because maybe I visited them. Or, you know, somebody's on drugs, like I talked to them. There's a problem on the set. Uh, you know, actors have a tendency to create problems sometimes. You know, that costs a lot of money if you got to stop shooting. Well, sometimes it, it just takes a, a voice of reason, a calm voice of reason, who can be in touch with the moods of both people and find a point of harmony. And that could avoid all manner of problems, including bloodshed. That's exactly how it's done. Very simple, very quiet, and then you don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm going to tell you a quick little story that you might get a kick out of. <laughs> a real small potato story. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I just got there. And I didn't have a vehicle. These very nice people gave me use of a beautiful showroom new uh, Buick, he's uh, called Medusa and a Quarter, you know, Park Avenue. Mint, mint condition, just gorgeous. Second day I have it, it's stolen because I set the keys down on the counter at the 7 Eleven while I'm talking to the, the clerk. So <laughs> takes the keys, takes the car. And in Vegas, they won't even look for a stolen vehicle for it's like something like 72 hours, 48 hours, something like that. You know, the cops say, well, it probably took it for a joyride and runs out of gas, they'll park it. Or. It's going to a chop shop. So I put on my uh, Giorgio Armani suit and get my hair razor cut. And I go to the cab drivers. And I say, I want to know where to go talk to whoever has, shall we say, the uh, the influence <laughs> on both ends of town as far as stolen vehicles go. And he told me. So I go to this guy. I walk in. The guys will look at me like, who the hell is this? I didn't sit down across from him because that can be considered confrontational. I sat down to his would be his uh, his left, which is a good position to be in. And uh, I simply said, "Someone made a mistake. They took the wrong car." Uh, tell you what, I'll pay you X amount of dollars to make the phone call. I'll pay X amount of dollars to the guy who delivers my car back, and I promise you, nobody's going to do nothing. Got the car back. Yeah, got the car back. No problem. Yeah. Now, if I had gone in there yelling and screaming about something. Was that Herbie Blipsey? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no names. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead now. Yeah, well, I'm not, thank God. <laughs> I'm still around. But uh, I learned that a long time ago. You know, you sit down, you talk like a gentleman, uh, you make everybody as happy as they possibly can be, and people are more than happy to smooth the trail for you. Right. Go in there screaming and yelling and threatening. You know, who wants to deal with that? <laughs> yelling and threatening and screaming don't get you nowhere. No. Nah. No. Nah. Do you think a lot of people would have learned that lesson by now? And I have a philosophy. If I can't do what I got to do in 15 minutes, then I'm not doing my job right. Yeah. That's the all in the show business, they say. At least I do. <laughs> if you can't put your idea succinctly on the back of a book of matches you don't have it right you know you got to be able to say 
this is what it is, you know, concept or not. But if you if you got to go on, I was just talking to a writer the other day. And he was trying to pitch me on joining him on a project. And I said, "What is it?" And he's going on and on and on and on. And on. <laughs> I said, "Stop! Stop the insanity!" I said, "Get back to me when you can give it to me." Like it's going to be listed in TV Guide, the log line, right. you know, two lines that tells me what it's about. Then we'll talk. But uh, so, did you when you made that transition, which wasn't really up to you? Uh, simply of taking your talents and applying those same skills, except, shall we say, in a different genre, <laughs> in a different well, environment, say. You know, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that Jim Generali, and even after I found out about it, and I still was, I was trying to sell my agency to become even with the insurance company, he was calling my office, and I could tell he was wired up, you know, and he's asked me questions. Hey, how's your friend Meyer and Sonny Franchet doing? And I can remember. I don't know who you're talking about. Uh-huh. He said, well, you know, son, you meet with Sonny Franchet all the time. And, you know, you used to walk with Meyer Lansky. I said, I had no idea. I said, maybe I read those names in the paper or something. And it turns out when I went to court, they were all there taped. <laughs> I had a friend of mine, uh, Malibu, used to go for a walk every day. She walked with her buddy Nick. They go for these walks. I said, what does your buddy Nick do? She says, I don't know. We just go for these walks. It was Nick Nolte. Oh, she, yeah. <laughs> she had no idea. <laughs> and it turned out <laughs> she knew all the people she knew, like, by their first names. She go their whole, but she never really, like, asked, like, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and she wasn't into going to movies. And so she didn't know these people were famous. So she uh, was kind of a surprise to her to find out, geez, she's famous for something. You could also work the other direction. Uh, Bing Crosby's wife, a friend of my sister's, I think maybe they're both gone now. And uh, he says, I'd like to speak to my wife. Well, who's this? This is Bing Crosby. And the guy who asked the says, yeah, and I'm Bob Hope. I hung up on him. <laughs> I, did, I did that uh, as a child. You did that as a child? You hung up on Bob Hope? I hung up on Bob Hope. My uncle was uh, a CPA, and his, was his uh, tax attorney, or tax huh. preparer. And he well, that's okay. Matt Allen, our producer... Uh, Ignored Jerry Lewis for 20 minutes before <laughs> Jerry hung up on him. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I did this podcast a few nights ago on the Gangster Chronicles. I heard that. You heard that? Yeah. And uh, it's really big. I'll tell you something. I, I couldn't believe it. They gotten in two days over 12,000 downloads. They told me it's one of the biggest they had. And they get over 70,000 in a month. Yep. Uh... It's a good show. I, it's the first time I'd heard it. And uh, Denny gave me the link. Denny Griffith gave me the link to the show so I could learn more about you. And I really thought those guys did a really good job. And they're here in L.A. too, I guess. So. Right here in Los Angeles. And I'll tell you, a bunch of professionals, you can't believe. They're really good. And, you know, I, don't, I still don't have my book in my hand. And they didn't have a book yet. And, you know, uh, they did, did this guy, Alex Alonzo, he did his research, and they were good. I'm going to be back on that show uh, because I did do a lot with these guys, uh, Haitian Jack, Jimmy Henchman, uh, Wyclef John, uh, and, you know, Suge Knight and those people. Oh, boy. Uh, so, uh, Howard, Howard Lapidus has some Suge Knight stories. Huh? <laughs> Howard Lapidus, the fellow I mentioned earlier, the entertainment manager, producer. Yeah. 
who is a co-host of his show. He passed away a couple months ago, sadly. But he has some Suge Knight stories that just make your skin crawl. <laughs> and then the other well, people... With me, Suge was very respectful. Uh, always. Well, that's, a, that's a, a good sign in both ways. Yeah. Uh, you don't want someone being a jerk to you when they, there's no reason to. And sometimes people be very, very nice to you, and you got to be afraid of it. Right. <laughs> you, know, you just have to, to to read the vibes, you know, beyond the words. Yeah. So anyway, to finish the story, so I'm sitting here day before yesterday, and, you know, I get, like everybody else, I get 100 robocops a day. But the phone numbers come up on my telephone, on my right. TV screen. I could tell a robocall from other cars. And this one says, Lighthouse Entertainment. I go, hmm, should I answer this? I answer it. Hello? Yeah, I'm looking for Ori Spado. I says, oh, who's calling? Uh, my name's Jeffrey Jones from Lighthouse Entertainment. I'm looking for Ori Spado. I says, you found him, Jeffrey. What can I do for you? He said, well, I saw the podcast you were on. He said, we're doing a documentary, and uh, we'd like to talk to you about Haitian Jack, Jimmy Henchman, and all these people, and, you know, you were really close, and I mean, yeah. He said, could we meet with you? I said, certainly. I said, you guys are going to pay me. That's a very good first question. Uh, he said, yeah, we, we, we'll do something. Let me talk with my partner. Can I have your email? I give him my email. I said, copy my son. He's my, not only my son, he's my manager, too. I keep and the family. My son called me. He says, Pops, you know who these people are? I said, I got no clue. He said, he said Dad, they won an Oscar for a thing called Searching for Sugar Men. Yeah, that's a great so, documentary. Yeah, he says, these guys are legit. He says, and they sure they want you want. It's already sold to FX. So we're going to have a meeting with them next week, we'll see. Sounds good to me. <clears throat> Our friend Dan Zapansky does a very successful podcast called True Murder. And uh, uh, he's a great journalist as well. Uh, don't be surprised if you get a call from him one of these days. <laughs> I'd like to get a call from him. Yeah, really a good guy. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, we've been doing this show, if I can, we can blow our own horn or play our own violin, honk, for honk. 11 years. We're the America's first, you know, established true crime podcast in America. And after 11 years, I think I might have figured this out, but I'm still learning <laughs> gradually about true crime podcasts. There's every kind now. There's funny ones, there's ones that are deadly serious, some with sound effects and drama, uh... Some that have a political bent to them, where they'll bend things to fit their agenda. And we just try to sit here and talk and have a good time and hopefully sell a lot of books. <coughs> I well, like that's the name of the intention, book. trying to sell a lot of books. Yeah. What's the name of the book and where can we? The name of the book is The Accidental Gangster. People can go to my website, uh, com. And they can purchase it through there. It brings them right to Amazon. Or they can go to my Instagram account, The Accidental Gangster. Well, you got it covered. 
Plus, uh, how'd you wind up working with uh, with Denny, with uh, Dennis Griffin? Oh, uh, Denny, that's a funny story. We went to school together in really? New York. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Denny was and one of the very first people I ever had on this show. You won't believe this. The last time I saw Dennis Griffin, I was stationed at Schofield Barracks in the Army. And I used to meet girl of Hawaii was great. Yeah. One Sunday I met this girl and she had to be at twelve from Chicago. <laughs> she was with her mother. And I give her such a bullshit story. Here I am, eighteen, nineteen years old. I'm telling her I own all these restaurants and I gave her a bullshit story. <laughs> and now I got a date with her for Monday night, the next night. And then I start thinking, and I said, Ori, why the hell did you bullshit her? You didn't have to do that. I got too embarrassed. I said, freak, I, I stood her up. Oh, no, and she was a 12. Yeah. So now, even in Hawaii, at 18, 19, everybody on, at the international marketplace, uh, everybody knew me. You got to remember something. I was 18 years old, making $74.50 a month. I had an apartment in Waikiki, hmm. and my rent was 150 so I was pretty good with $74 a month. Hell yes. <laughs> so, I'm walking, and I'm ready to turn in, and I look across the street, and I see the girl with her mother. Uh-oh. I put my right hand up. I'm trying to dodge her. I make a turn. And I bump into this guy, because I'm looking down at the ground, and I could tell a Navy uniform. I look up, it's Dennis Griffin. Mm. What the hell? So we talked, we had oh, <laughs> went somewhere, had a drink. And then one day I had to go to Tripler General Army Hospital. I don't know, get shots and that there. We used to go there. And, you know, you're in the service. I didn't want to go back to the barracks and walking around the halls of the the hospital and I see this guy with freaking crutches on his legs, his arms up by me and he's going, Ori, Ori <laughs> with Dennis <laughs> he was in a car accident it was pretty bad so I went in and talked, he asked me to call his mother, let his mother know he was alright, which I did and that was the last time I saw Dennis. Until? Until now, my I happen to be represented by one of the most prestigious entertainment law firms in Hollywood. Hirsch, Wallace, Mayhem, Matt Lawson, Fishman. And George Ham represents me over there. And when I got out of prison, George and I met at the Four Seasons. And I told him, I said, George, all these people coming to me, they want to do reality shows, they want to do this. I said, I said, you know, I've been around this town, I know the bullshitters. That's the majority. Said, I want to tell you what you <laughs> got to do. You got to write a book, I know your story. He said, well, we'll get a movie made. I said, really? I said, you know, George, I actually thought about it. He said, find a co-writer or something like that there. So, I started calling around different people I know that are writers, but they're script writers, right. not book writers. Yeah. 
So I said, the hell with it. And I sat down and I just started writing myself on my computer. And I was probably a third of the way through when I called my cousin back east. And he said, someone wants to say hello. And it was another kid, Tom Burst, that I went to school with. Bring him up to date. I tell him what I'm writing. And he says, do you remember Dennis Griffin? He said, Dennis in Las Vegas. He's been writing a lot of books, this and that. I said, really, Dennis? I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. I Googled him, sure as hell. There's Dennis Griffin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He owns he that town. Email, I emailed him. He called me immediately, and there we are. Well, I'll tell you, I, I just first met him, and I was doing this show, and I've been writing some true crime books, and I went to Las Vegas, not necessarily to work, although I've been doing promotional work in Vegas since the 70s for Gary Nassif. But anyway, I get to the airport, and there's this bookstore there. It's got all of Dennis's books. I mean, anybody who gets stuck in Vegas for more than an hour to change planes is going to wind up buying one of his books. It's a heck of a deal for him. So, really? so I always tease him that, you know, that's his primary source of income is that bookstore in the, in the Las Vegas airport. See, airport's a very good place to buy books, audio books, big seller. And I just found out that Wild Blue Press is a print-on-demand print or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's a, actually, that's a, I know the history on this because I didn't make a lot of money <laughs> several years ago <coughs> because I had a print-on-demand publisher before the industry had adapted to it. Well, now, because of the technology, all your big publishing companies are using the technology where why print up 100,000 copies of a book and have them sitting in your basement if they haven't been sold? Right. But with print-on-demand, the technology is such that if, I, if we're out of books and I got an order for five books... They can fill the order. You know, press a button, print the book. And uh, it, it makes it possible for the authors, such as you and I, who both happen to be with Wild Blue Press, to make more money faster because the uh, royalty rate is higher and they pay every month, as opposed to the royalty rate being less than half of what they pay and being paid twice a year. So, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Burl. What? Wild Blue Press is paying you? Yes, real money. Wow. Um, any any possibility you reimburse me for your chicken breasts? No. Oh, just now, that. You write that off under research. Uh, can I write it off under I'm an idiot? <laughs> yeah, that works too. <laughs> well, you know, I copied my son on all my email, and I was pissed because I wanted it because I had an event planned if I could do a book signing at the Barnes & Noble at the Grove and then another book signing at the Amazon store bookstore in Century City. Mm. And uh, <laughs> they said they can't. They don't carry the book. Yeah. That we is, don't carry the book. That's right. Oh, I was told Ingram's the biggest distributor. No, it's a print-on-demand. I didn't know what it meant. It meant they print-on-demand. I'm writing to... And I copied my son. My son calls me. I says, Dad, why are you so pissed? He said, Dad, don't worry about that. He says, He said, ninety-five percent of the books are sold on Amazon. People don't go to stores no more. That's right. And I learned something else you'll like to know. Right after I get done choking on this Cheeto, when people buy a book, 
they download it, right, electronically? Yeah. You will actually be paid by the number of pages they read. And it's a small amount, like 0.04% or something. Uh, Pearl's but, uh, really? but it all adds up. It's a technology of how they keep track of how much of the book someone reads amazes me. But the publisher gets paid. And I didn't. I was totally unaware of this strategy until I was talking to uh, Michael Cordova at Wild Blue Press. And, it was, and they, they have a, a package out right now. It's an incredible deal. Three books, one of them being mine, Murder in a Family, one by uh, M. William Phelps. Wow, I lost, bro. And, 44 uh, minutes. It's, and, yeah. And uh, uh, Steve Jackson. 99 cents <coughs> for four books. <laughs> and yet, you make money. Yeah, you know, Mike was telling me something about that. I didn't quite understand how it works. Uh, the part that only concerns me is that the check is in the mail. And <laughs> That's the only thing that, uh, you know, I, I, and, you know I, I don't want to talk with Dennis today. I said, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know, and nobody told me about it. I mean, God damn it, I'm 74 years old. Hey, we're about the same age. You're just got I'll be 75 on. next month. And, you know, you got to remember, I was in prison also. So, I mean, all this newfangled shit, I'm lucky I'm able to freaking do email. <laughs> And, you know, and my son gets pissed off at me. And I finally told my son, I said, Anthony, you lived with me when we bought the first computer. I said, you taught me. I said, the computer was in your room, and I used to go in there at 6 a.m. in the morning, and I'd ask you how to do this and do that. He said, yeah, Dad. And I tell you a million times, you still don't know how. I said, Anthony, you could tell me 10 million times again, and I'm not going to know how. <laughs> I got a mental block. Is probably probably the stuff? same with a VCR. You know, how do you change the time on the clock on your VCR? Blink, right. blink, blink, blink. <laughs> blink, uh, blink, but, blink, I blink. Mean, it's just what is happening in today's world with the technology is, is amazing. And then after I got pissed off a while, I sat back there after my son talked to me. I said, holy shit, he's right. I buy my books online. I buy my groceries online. Yeah. Why are you so surprised? <laughs> right. So why did I get so upset? <laughs> That's right. It's like I said, gee, I can't find uh, horse and buggy accessories anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is fascinating. A friend of mine had some great old magazines about when electricity was first coming out. You had electrical this, electrical that. And people, instead of embracing the new technology for their company and finding a way to make money off of it, simply opposed everything. Don't be fooled by this electricity craze. <laughs> <laughs> electricity is dangerous, which it is very dangerous. You can get electrocuted. You know, not going to get electrocuted with... Uh, your propane lamp. Well, but you could burn to death. You could burn to death. That's right. Everything has its risks. Like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Sharknado, where there's sharks falling from the sky. And these people are in, like, uh, Santa Monica. you got to get to Van Eyes. And there's sharks falling from the sky, eating people. And they say, well, get on the 405 person. says, no, no, not the 405. 
<laughs> They'd rather be eaten by sharks than get on the 405. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been Let me tell you another story. Yeah. Many, many years ago, my friend Steve Gold, he used to have offices over at Wally Studio on Santa Monica Boulevard. And he calls me up one day and he said, listen, there's a new thing coming out. You, I got the guy uh, that's in, in charge of it over here, Japanese guy. You got to meet him. Come on over. So I go over, and this guy's talking to me about this new final fax machine. Oh. And I look, he said, tell me what it's going to do. He told me it's going to be in all drugstores, and, you know, this is a ground floor opportunity. And I looked at him, I said, you got telex. Why is anybody going to want these things? And I didn't do it. Yeah. Wish you had now, huh? Yeah. Now <laughs> nobody knows what a telex is. And no one knows what a fax machine is after all. Nobody knows what a fax is anymore. <laughs> That's how fast it moves. I'll tell you an interesting thing about fax machines. Here's a totally useless piece of knowledge for you. Yeah. Fax machines were the first and perhaps only uh, communication advancement that was not opposed as being the work of the devil. Telephones were. You, know, you could, could even get a legal telephone in Boston, Massachusetts for quite a while. What about the uh, telegraph? No, that was opposed also. Every, yeah. every um, breakthrough in communication technology has been opposed as it's going to destroy our civilization, except the fax machine. And that's because it was a merger of two already approved forms. Telephone and a copy machine, uh, and that's the reason it didn't get the uh, the opposition that uh, uh, radios got or uh, TV telephones. <clears throat> all were wow. That's the work of the devil. <laughs> the work of the devil. Okay. Yeah. We the, uh, franchise on that. The uh, the uh, one of the founders of IBM, and um, there were all kinds of typewriters and mm -hmm. you know was all. You know, machine, big machines. Machines. And his son said, "You know, uh, we're looking at the at uh, setting up a computer division." I'm having a hard time again. You're having a computer division, and his father said, "Absolutely not. That's just a waste of time. It'll never stick." Yeah. You, and you, until it wasn't until he passed away and his son took over the business that IBM got into computers. Into computers. Well, remember, 1965, mark this date, in 1965, TV Guide had an article proclaiming there were two things, two things that would never, ever be successful in the United States. Yogurt and soccer. Yeah, well, look at it now, huh? <laughs> in fact, I, I know a, uh, a a pint of yogurt that plays fabulous. Fabulous, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I wanted to ask our lovely guest a question. Please do. Ask the question right up on that microphone. So we can right up on this microphone. Um, do you see anything anything good coming out of your book? I, I, I didn't hear the question. Um, uh, is there anything that you were hoping for that your book can do uh, if, uh, if, some, if young people read it? If young people I, read your book, yeah. You know, I lived a life... I thought I was smarter than everybody. I'm not. And I try to convey to the young people to go to school or get a trade. Stay away from the life. It's not what you think it is. 
And what you see on television is just for that there for amusement purposes. Uh, it's not reality. Uh, get a legitimate job. If I could help one person, one young boy, stay out of the life, and then I serve my purpose. Boy, I'll tell you, that's, I've, I have heard that from uh, so many former mobsters or former criminals to say the exact same thing. And uh, we may be living in a what uh, Dr. Robert Hare called a, a uh, camouflage society where people who otherwise would be criminals are running legit businesses as if they were criminals, like, say, the insurance companies. You know... I, I look like a gangster, I guess. I talk like a gangster. I haven't been in Hollywood uh, for 45 years. You know, and going on, I always went out to the best places. People are attracted to that there. I've had people come to me. I've had actors and actresses come to me and ask me for my autograph. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, and I don't even know who the hell these people are. But, I mean, I can sit down next to a famous actor today. I'm not going to know who it is. But it's amazing, and I use that persona. To your advantage. <laughs> to my advantage. It worked for me because I just wasn't going to be the type of guy who's going to go out and get a job and, you know, get a weekly paycheck oh, and yeah. uh, that kind of crap. I, I just wasn't built like that there. And I've always been a good earner. <coughs> well, that's a nice trick if you can do it. They say most men in our society, most men will spend more time and more thought picking out a tie than they will in choosing a career. That's right. See, I wasn't going to fall into that either. You know, the same thing. You know, I just could not see myself in that cubicle, you know. I was just like, my way. <laughs> you can't go for what you feel in your gut. If you follow your passion, unless it's 16-year-old twins, if you follow your passion, it's probably what's going to work out for you. Yeah, the only problem is the older we get, the tougher it gets. Well, you notice that, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, you're only a couple of years. I think I'm 20, still 20. Yeah, I got the same problem. Well, that's a generation. You know, there's actually been studies done on this. It's a generational thing. People in our age group, and we're about the same age, we yeah. tend to think of ourselves as still being young. And we're not turning things over generations ago. You know, generations, what, seven years? Uh, the younger generation got skipped over because we kept doing it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the old clock on the wall says, if I was a cartoon, someone would shoot my bird. What's the name of the book again, Burl? Accidental Gangster. And this guy's more famous now than he was a year ago. <laughs> and <coughs> if he and I can both stay alive another 10 years, uh, we'll get rich. Let's <laughs> yeah, do a 20-year, bro. Okay. All right. I love that. Love Plus, that. we're both the same town, so we got to get for, together. Thanks for joining us. a couple more books in me. Hey, good. Excellent. So do I. Thanks for being on the show. We'll have you back again, and you and I will get together for lunch one day here soon. Uh, Burrow, what's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence, including you and I. Ah. On all of these lines across my face 
Stories where I'm. 